Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 4th of February with me, Ian Welsh. Coming up a bit later on is the next in our series of conversations with the team at Textile Exchange, this time on the challenges of tackling climate change for the textiles and apparel sector and some of the innovations that are necessary for the sector to plot a route to net zero. And this week I caught up with Innovation Forum's Hannah Haumari about the Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Forum that's coming up in April. First though, is some sustainable business news. The UN Environment Programme has called for the G20 Group of the World's Richest Nations to double their annual spending on nature protection and restoration to $285 billion over the period through to 2050. In a new report on G20 countries funding for nature, UNEP estimates that spending was only $120 billion in 2020. Speaking to the Thomson Reuters Foundation, the report authors stressed that the amount of money being invested in nature-based solutions is not nearly enough and that the G20 needs to lead by example. Among the areas the report considers are climate change mitigation, biodiversity loss and land degradation. Protection for nature and the growth of regenerative agricultural practices are among the solutions. While $285 billion is a significant level of investment, the UNEP report pointed out that $14.6 trillion was spent by 50 leading economies in 2020 alone to stimulate recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. Global food giant Nestle has announced new plans to tackle child labour and cocoa production. As part of a scheme aiming to enhance farmer livelihoods and improving practices, cash incentives will be paid to farmers undertaking certain activities, including enrolling children at school. The new plan is also designed to support the company's work to transform its cocoa sourcing to achieve full traceability and segregation for cocoa products. Nestle says that it will invest $1.4 billion in total. The scheme combines rewards for quality of product produced, but also environmental benefits and those for the local community. Incentives will be in addition to others Nestle already pays, including for Rainforest Alliance certified cocoa beans. Nestle was one of seven companies involved in the chocolate trade that were sued in early 2021 by campaign group International Rights Advocate for links with child labour in cocoa supply chains. The new approach from Nestle has been welcomed by activists. Certainly, child labour has been endemic in the cocoa sector in West Africa and been the subject of campaigning for some time. New research has demonstrated how climate change is impacting now and in the future where key food crops can be grown. Focusing in coffee, avocado and cashew, a new paper in the journal Plus One highlights how such crops have long lifespans and as such, it's important to know where they can be grown for the long term. Analysing 14 climate models based on three future emission scenarios, researchers looked at the potential impact by 2050 of climate change on main producing countries. They found that these impacts will be significant. In particular, long dry seasons and changes in temperatures meant that there will be shifts in suitable growing regions. Coffee's vulnerability has been the subject of previous research, and this is borne out. Negative climate impacts will dominate in all main producing regions. New research also found that in existing production areas for avocado and cashew, the most suitable areas may decrease, but that there is the potential for other regions to become more suitable. For all three, climate change adaptation will be necessary. One of the transitions facing the transition to renewable energy has been how to store energy that's not required when it's generated. After all, it's not necessarily windy at times of peak energy demand. This, of course, perpetuates the argument for big conventional power stations, fossil fuel or nuclear, that can be ramped up at short notice to meet fluctuating demand. However, an expert committee in India is recommending that the country should halt new coal-fired plants as improving battery capacity means that only renewable power facilities should now be built. India has thus far been highly reliant on electricity from coal. 
The expert committee, headed by a former Central Electricity Authority chair, has concluded that low-cost renewable energy capacity, alongside battery and hydro storage schemes, can handle growth in India's energy demand, according to the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis and picked up by Energy Mix website. The committee calls for 450 gigawatts of new renewable capacity to replace retired coal capacity by 2030. India will still have significant coal in its energy generation mix for some time, but a halt to any new coal-fired power stations is perhaps an indication of intent to meet the nation's long-term energy commitments. The Innovation Forum Spring Conference Series will include forums on sustainable apparel and textile supply chains, the future for food, and business action on climate change. All details of who is participating and how to register for tickets is available on the Innovation Forum website. From the 4th to the 5th of April, we'll be holding this year's Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Forum in London. To find out how the event is shaping up, I caught up with Innovation Forum's Hannah Halmari. Welcome back to the podcast, Hannah. Thanks, Ian. We're going to talk a bit about Innovation Forum's Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Forum, which is coming up 4th and 5th of April in London, which is being run by Hannah. I'm really excited because we're going to be back meeting in person. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's right. It'll be our first in-person conference pretty much since, since COVID hit. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it, getting everyone in the same room that's not virtual. It's funny, I've certainly enjoyed a lot of the meetings we've had, well, I've enjoyed all the meetings we've had online, but I'm very much looking forward to getting back to meeting face-to-face and having the kind of different sorts of conversations that you can only have when you are in a face-to-face conference. Hannah, tell me a bit about what's coming up on the agenda for this conference. So the two-day cross-industry conference, we're going to be assessing how companies can develop and implement robust human rights policies and responsible sourcing policies. We're looking at bringing together over 150 key stakeholders for a closed-door, candid discussion on the practicalities of business transformation and how business can build more ethical, responsible and transparent supply chains. So the agenda covers a variety of issues looking at business model transformation, responsible procurement, of course, the evolving legislation we're seeing in this space, mandatory due diligence, living income, child labor issues, and and so on. And I think it's worth pointing out that, of course, we will be back off the record and speaking using the Chatham House rule, something which is very hard to do online. So that's something that another big plus when you meet face to face and, of course, encourages open discussion. So who have we got coming, Hannah? So we've confirmed a number of really fantastic speakers from organizations like L'Oreal, Mondelez, Ethical Trade Initiative, Twinings, IKEA, Novartis, Reckitt, Auto Group, and many, many more. And then we've also had a number of bookings come through. So we'll be joined by representatives from organizations like the Walt Disney Company, Bay Systems, the Ocado Group, National Grid, Halfords, Oxum, and more. Excellent. I think it's going to be a really good mixture of people. I'm looking forward very much to the conversations. Are there any particular sessions that stand out for you at the moment? Yes. Yeah, so again, I'm looking forward to, of course, hearing from all of our speakers across all of the sessions. But I have to say, actually, the opening plenary session where we're looking at business model transformation, it's a really higher level discussion on what's needed to deliver ethical transformation at scale. I think that'll be a really interesting one. And of course, as ever with Innovation Forum, there will be a variety of formats across the conference. We'll have plenary sessions, we'll have breakout groups, we'll have one-to-one discussions. And across the event, though, we'll be encouraging everyone to get involved in the conversation. How can our listeners get involved, Hannah? If anyone's interested in sponsoring the event, we, of course, have a range of sponsorship opportunities so they can get in touch with my colleague, Matt Archer. You can find his email on the conference website and he'll be happy to share more information with you. And then as for attending the conference, you can register online 
And you can save 200 pounds on your ticket if you register before the next deadline, which is next Friday on the 11th of February. So um, there's plenty of opportunities there. So just a reminder, if you want to register, listeners, you can save £200 if you register by the 11th of February. Looking forward to it, Hannah, but thanks for your time today. Thanks, Ian. We've been pleased to be working with the team at Textile Exchange on a series of conversations looking at some of the key challenges for the apparel and textile sector. A few weeks ago, I spoke with Claire Bergkamp, COO, and Beth Jensen, Director of Textile Exchange's Climate Plus Strategy, about some of the innovations in the sector that will help companies plot a route to net zero carbon and their willingness to make the changes necessary. We're going to talk a bit about climate today and reflect on the outcomes from COP26 and think about some of the other climate innovations and programmes that Textile Exchange are involved with. Claire, I know that at Textile Exchange, you guys had a bit of a rethink around your climate strategy around a year ago. Do you want to talk, tell us a bit about that to get us going? Yeah, absolutely. And I know this is a one in a mini series, so people will have heard us probably speak a little bit about our Climate Plus strategy in some of the other podcasts if you've been hearing the series. Um, around a year ago at the conference, not this year, but the previous year, we announced the full Climate Plus strategy and the pivot that we have been undertaking as an organization to reorganize our work to deliver that strategy. Uh, the Climate Plus strategy has a North Star vision of helping the industry to achieve a 45% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in the pre-spin part of the supply chain by 2030. And we call it Climate Plus because while that is our kind of North Star target, the plus symbolizes biodiversity, soil health and water, as well as partnership. Because while we know that 45% is absolutely critical, uh, to get there, we need to take a holistic view and make sure that we're not forgetting the other very important areas and pathways that all need to be addressed simultaneously to achieve that reduction. Yeah, climate's become very front and center for our work, and as is those kind of other plus areas. Obviously, climate was front and centre for many through 2021, not least leading up to the COP26 meetings in Glasgow. So we're speaking in late December. Now that the dust has settled a bit from COP26, what for you, Claire, were the big outcomes from the meetings for the apparel sector? I think one thing that was really meaningful about COP this year is that it was the first time the fashion industry has had a real space in place. Um, the industry, the textile and fashion industry, was a lot more present than it has been at previous COPs. Um, and a lot of that is through the United Nations, the UNFCCC, Fashion Industry Charter for Climate Action, um, which was announced a few COPs ago, but reintroduced and introduced new commitments at this year's COP. And so I think that there was just a lot more presence from the industry and some really important increased ambitions that came through the charter and from the companies that were present at COP. Specifically, the charter has raised the ambition to a 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 for those companies that don't already have science-based targets. From our side, there's a really exciting commitment that's been added to the charter around a goal of 100% priority materials from preferred and or low carbon impact sources by 2030, which I think is a great direction to travel for the industry to be heading in. We were at COP this year as well, and uh, we announced an initiative that we're pulling together, really asking governments around the world to look at trade policy 
We think that there's a real opportunity to help incentivize the uptake of sustainable fibers and materials through the reduction of import duties. We think that this is an underutilized and underexplored opportunity for helping remove barriers to scale lower impact environmentally preferred fibers and materials. We had over 50 industry organizations, brands, and other nonprofits and industry groups sign on to show support of this concept. We think that this incentivization is really critical. There's been a lot of talk and there was a lot of talk at COP around the need for regulation. And we completely agree, but we think that you need both. You need both regulation and to have incentives for better. Incentives can sometimes move the marketplace faster. And so anything that we can do to help level that playing field is really important. We hear from companies all the time that the number one barrier to using more sustainable materials, more environmentally preferred materials is cost. And so starting by addressing cost is a logical step. And the other thing that we liked about this idea of leveraging and looking at trade incentives is that it's not something that negatively would impact the suppliers and the farmers. You know, we're not saying that organic cotton should be grown for less but perhaps there could be a reduced import tariff on it coming into a country. So I think that that was for us. The big request that we brought to COP was for governments to pay attention to this. And in general, coming out of COP, I do feel like it's good. It's good that the industry is on the radar. I think that it's good that we have the increased ambitions. And now we, again, you know, I think the message continues to have to be, we know where we need to go. So we all just need to roll up our sleeves and start figuring out how we remove the barriers and create those pathways to get where we need to go. Beth, as Claire just mentioned, Textile Exchange has established a Climate Plus strategy, which aims for a 45% emissions reduction in the sector by 2030. So as far as you're concerned, what are the principal challenges for the sector to get to this point and then to a net zero position by mid-century? I guess the first thing I would say, too, is that a number of different scientific research pieces have come out, not the least of which is the, the latest IPCC report a few months ago, saying that we really need to hit these targets by 2030 in order to have any thought of hitting our net zero by mid-century target. And the first thing I would say is we really have to look to 2030 and accelerate action now in order to achieve that longer-term target. But um, as Claire mentioned, you know, at Textile Exchange, our scope of work is really pre-spin. When we think about that, it's really about how are materials grown and produced, and then what sorts of impacts are occurring in the initial processing phase of those raw materials. Within that scope, we've done a bunch of scenario modeling over the last several years, and really three key levers have come out, and three key levers that we need to focus on as an industry within this pre-spin scope in order to achieve our targets and to particularly achieve that 45% target by 2030. You know, the first of those levers is what textile exchange, I think, has historically been known for across our 20 year history. It's the material substitution piece. So how do we increase the uptake of preferred lower impact versions of the types of materials that we need to use in the industry? replacing virgin polyester with recycled polyester, replacing conventionally grown cotton with organic or other types of preferred cotton. And it's important to note here, we're not talking about swaps across material categories. We're not necessarily saying you should swap out polyester for cotton or vice versa or, or anything like that. It's really more about within those material categories for those specific purposes, 
what's the best option in terms of the least amount of impact that that material can have. And the challenges there are really, as Claire just said, you know, primarily cost um, and also availability of a lot of the preferred options today. As we know, organic cotton is not scaled to the point where we'd be able to really broadly swap that out across the industry today. And so how can we continue to work on scaling concepts like that, regenerative versions of these natural materials, et cetera? That's a lot of what we're working on. Um, The second lever is really around the innovation gap. So we're not just talking about next generation types of innovative materials here, although that's a piece of it, but also broader concepts that we would consider uh, innovation, things like regenerative agriculture. Um, So things where we're still really trying to figure out how to measure the actual impact reduction potential that these concepts have at scale for the industry. Um, And there are a number of challenges here, of course, um, you know, not the least of which is how do we drive financing to accelerate scale of these different innovative concepts? You know, the industry isn't really built that well today to invest in sort of early stage innovation. A handful of companies do have these sort of innovation funding models, um, but that's not widespread across the industry. And we're going to need more funding to really accelerate some of these things and accelerate concepts like regenerative ag. We're going to need funding outside of corporate funding to do that. And then the third piece of this is really, you know, something that I know was a discussion quite a bit at COP as well, which is really what we call degrowth or slow growth. So what we're talking about there is how do we decouple business value and business success from extraction of new materials to make new product? We cannot keep producing the same amount of new products, extracting the same amount of new materials and expect to meet our impact reduction targets. How do we enable companies and how can companies think differently about how they create business value outside of the traditional definition of making more and more new product? Many challenges there, of course, the structural limitations of the system, which is really built to reward that traditional growth today, lack of full cost accounting mechanisms. So how do we really embed the true costs of both environmental and social and all of the costs that are involved in sourcing these materials and making these products. All of that is is sort of structurally, I think what we're we're exploring how to accelerate against really as an industry. These are big challenges, aren't they? Thinking in terms of material substitution, the gap in innovation that's still there and decoupling success from growth necessarily, you know, massive challenges. So what are the sorts of innovations then that you think or you hope to see to allow levers to be pulled effectively? I think at a high level, we really talk about Really, we should be recycling as much material that's already out in the world as possible. You know, there's been all this embedded energy and embedded impact in the material materials and the products that have already been created. And then when we do need to source new materials, how can we do that in the least impactful way possible? Ideally, for natural materials, the North Star should really be regenerative and organic. Across those two big levers, when we talk about when we have to use materials, those are two ways to think about success and think about where we want to go in the future. And there's huge opportunities to build out the supply of recycled materials, particularly for synthetic fabrics, which today the reality is polyester is two thirds of what the industry is using as a raw material. So how do we move beyond plastic bottles, essentially beyond another industry's waste, you know, beyond downcycling another industry's waste as a feedstock? And how do we work on building systems to recycle textiles and polymers from items like footwear in a truly closed loop system for the industry wherever possible? And then, as I mentioned, really exciting developments 
and I shouldn't say developments, I should really more frame regenerative ag around um, rediscovering practices that indigenous and native people have been doing for many, many years um, and rediscovering the benefits of approaching agriculture in that way versus the extractive system that has evolved in many places, in most places around the world, really, over the years. And so we're really leaning into this topic versus textile exchange, and we'll be coming out with what we're calling our regenerative landscape analysis report for the apparel and textile industry at the end of January. We've been working on this this past year, and it's really going to provide a common reference point and jumping off point, I would say, for getting our arms around this topic as an industry and, and identifying the collective gaps and leaning into it collectively as an industry. And the last thing I'll say on innovation is just, I think, Folks often jump right into this idea of next-gen innovative materials when they're asked about this question of innovation. And I certainly would advocate we need to keep looking into all of those new options for raw materials as well. But I would also encourage us as, as an industry to think more broadly about this topic of innovation, right? How do we scale not only things like regenerative ag and textile recycling and these types of things, but also, how do we work on scaling the preferred solutions that we already know we have today? And there's a lot of innovation that's wrapped up in that as well, that's still needed, frankly. So anyway, how do we take this sort of all of the above approach and work on scaling what we have today while also trying to identify the, the biggest bets or the, the biggest levers, if you will, for achieving that impact reduction at scale by 2030? We should look out for that report at the end of January. So how will our listeners be able to get hold of a copy? We'll be publishing it on the Textile Exchange website and potentially other platforms as well. So stay tuned. Yep, it'll be a publicly available report. But again, geared specifically at the apparel and textile space, because I think a lot of the research and this sort of landscaping work that's been done in the past has really focused on the food industry. Certainly the food industry has been a bit, I would say, out ahead of apparel and textiles on this topic over the past several years, but I think we're coming on strong. <laughs> it's been really clear that the industry would really be served well by, again, having a common reference point on what does a regenerative approach really mean? How can we thoughtfully move into this? What are the shared gaps? What types of organizations are out there that can help companies? How do we need to be thoughtful about the fact that these are practices that are rooted in indigenous and native practices that have been happening for many years? This is not a new concept though many people are certainly just now discovering this concept. Anyway, just sort of laying all that out in a, in a report for the industry that, again, we can use as a jumping off point for future research and future action as well. I'll make a commitment that I hope we will be able to meet. That If you listen to this after the end of January, there will be a link to this report in the notes for this podcast. Claire, I wonder if I could turn back to you. Obviously, we've mentioned, talked about a number of changes there that the apparel sector has to make. How do you characterize the willingness of the sector to make these changes, though? I mean, I think the overall willingness is there. You know, the vast majority of the companies that we speak to and suppliers understand that there is a necessary change. We're at a point where transformation is required. I think that where we kind of find that sticking point is the full business transformation. There's an acknowledgement that sourcing needs to change, that transparency is required. But to actually get to that tipping point of it being the majority or the tipping point of a company that's truly embedding slow growth into the way that it's operating, that's, I think, where the tension still occurs. And I think the only way we're going to overcome that is really having senior management, CEOs, board of directors understand these topics, you know, making sure that sustainability isn't siloed only in a sustainability team, but as a business directive, because 
what we're talking about it now is a transformation and it can't be sitting with a single part of a company. It needs to be a company's directive. And so I think that while there is a massive amount of willingness and there are real leaders in the space, you know, massive organizations that really are completely rethinking how they source, how they're going to grow responsibly, that we still have a long way to go when we look at the entire industry and the level of transformation that is still required. We know that there's still a lot of waste being generated. We know that there is still this barrier of it costs more and that this idea of slow growth or <laughs> degrowth is very scary You know, for an industry that is basically built on designed obsolescence. We have some big questions to tackle. But what I think is exciting is that with each one of these challenges, we're starting to see leaders emerge. There are companies that are starting to have degrowth strategies as a part of their strategy. There are big companies, you know, companies that you wouldn't expect that I'm not going to, you know, spill the beans on their behalf that are really looking at how do they get to 100% preferred fibers and materials. These are leaders that are emerging. And I think that what is exciting is that these are big players. You know, these are not the kind of niche, small sustainability brands. We're seeing transformation being embedded in certain organizations at a large scale. When you look at the entire industry, I think it can feel a little bit daunting. But to me, the fact that there are starting to emerge leaders that are really rethinking the way the business is going to run, it gives me a lot of hope for this next wave where we need to get with sustainability. So much of the challenge is getting to the point where people accept that change is required. Even getting to that stage takes a significant effort. And it's great, as you say, that there's a now seems to be a real willingness from some to really push on. Beth, is there anything you wanted to add on that? It's just the structural change that's going to be needed. And in order to do that, as Claire said, we're going to need executive leadership who really understand what is going to be required to do that and the important and who really have internalized the importance of, of moving on that. Nothing really to add. I think that's really the key takeaway there. As the industry transforms, and as we've discussed, inevitably there will be some unintended consequences that will emerge. There just always are. So Beth, what will we be looking out for as transformation takes place? When I think about this question, I think about the unintended consequences on, on impacts first and foremost. When we think about preferred fibers and materials, for example, as one of the levers, you know, really all fibers and materials have trade-offs. It's a really difficult question when we get asked, well, is X better than Y? <laughs> you know, across different categories of materials, it's sort of like, well, the answer is almost always it depends because there are so many different variables and, and factors that go into understanding the overall impact of a specific material you might be sourcing. It's really easy and common, I think, for the industry to want to optimize for just one impact area. And we've seen this happen particularly in climate because, of course, climate is one of the driving challenges, if not the driving challenge of our time. We need to be aligning an all-hands-on-deck approach, I guess, to achieving our climate targets, the dates when we need to achieve them. And we also need to make sure that while we're optimizing for climate, we're also recognizing the interdependency of these other impact areas. So as Claire mentioned, our Climate Plus strategy is really intended to capture this, where we're also looking at biodiversity, soil health, and water in particular on the environmental side. But we also want to keep in mind other impacts even outside of environmental ones. So things like social impacts and how are the, the choices that are being made by the industry affecting the people on the ground and economic systems, where value gets built, animal welfare, of course, and just all of these different impacts that can be adjusted based on what you're choosing and what you're optimizing for. While climate remains the North Star and, and should for the industry, I think it's just also really beneficial to make sure that it's not 
not a siloed approach. You're not just looking at climate in a silo. We are also looking at these other impact areas and making sure that we're not actively significantly harming in these other impact areas while we're trying to optimize for climate. It's very true, isn't it, that there's a real danger sometimes of focusing on, on carbon emissions and carbon emissions alone when there are so many other factors that must come into play. Did you want to add anything to that, Claire? Any further unintended consequences that you think may be coming across the horizon? I think Beth summarized it well. I mean, it's this idea of we can't have tunnel vision. We need systems thinkers in this moment. We need people that can start to understand how these things fit together. And there are a lot of people out there that have the experience to understand how these issues are truly interconnected. While we do always end up with some unintended consequences that we also are well set up, you know, across the industry of people that know how these things connect. And I also think that maybe a good reminder to everyone is we all need to be operating under the precautionary principle um, because we need to avoid harm. And I think that we actually get so caught up in measurement and specificity and the nuance and the not wanting to do this and not wanting to do that that we kind of just forget to remind ourselves that first and foremost, like do no harm. Let's really focus on that. How can, and of course that's easier said than done, but I do think operating with that assumption as decisions are made can help us avoid some of those unintended consequences. Let's think a little bit about the steps along the way, the milestones. Something that's changed is that everyone seems to now recognize that to achieve the really big goal, the net zero type goals in a sort of 30 year time frame, there must be interim steps along the way. And I guess your Climate Plus strategy is in itself an acknowledgement of that. So Beth, I wonder from your perspective, what are the milestones that you want to see this decade on your Climate Plus strategy? And then beyond that, out to 2050? As you mentioned, we really are focused on 2030. And that's going to be a huge challenge in and of itself for our industry because Product designers and developers are planning for products that are at least two years out at this point. So they're making sourcing decisions today. Those products aren't going to hit the shelves for another couple of years. We really have less than eight years as an industry, unfortunately. And so this just particularly for our industry with those long lead times, and that's another area uh, where innovation <laughs> can come in as well, by the way, is more real-time sourcing and product development, et cetera. It just means we have even a greater challenge in terms of really accelerating against our 2030 target. There are some key milestones that I would just mention or offer that are outlined in the United Nations Fashion Industry Charter for Climate Change that Claire mentioned earlier. It does That charter and that group really does orient the broad global industry around this idea of net zero GHG emissions goal by 2050. That's been a really valuable forum to set these collective targets as an industry and make sure that they're rooted in science and that we're all coalescing around the same targets as a broad global industry. So some of the targets that they've outlined there are 100% renewable electricity and scope two emissions by 2030, phasing out of coal from all supplier sites by 2030, including no new coal power by January 2023 at latest. The one that we've been focused on at, at Textile Exchange particularly is 100% priority materials so that the main materials sourced by the industry will be preferred by 2030. And then I would mention for all of this, I do think policy is going to be a really important broad lever as Textile Exchange. We're a nonprofit, so we're not going to be a policy leading organization ever per se, but we are stepping a bit more into this, as Claire mentioned, putting out the call to governments at COP on the importance of leveraging trade policy to drive more uptake of preferred materials and get over some of those cost barriers. 
engaging with the farm bill process here coming up for 2023 here in the United States and working to incentivize regenerative agriculture practices and scaling through that policy mechanism, working on other policy in the EU and other places that can really help drive broader uptake of preferred materials and really all of these levers that we need to pull. All of that to say, I do want to put in a plug for that as well and just recognize that a lot of this, we're really going to need those policy mechanisms to make that change at scale, to kind of get us over the hump, the next hump of really being able to drive meaningful progress and achieve our targets by 2030. Claire, yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. I think you've laid it out very nicely, Beth. I think what we want to see all along the way is meeting of targets, meeting of commitments and action. It's certainly something that's emerged in a lot of sectors in the last couple of years is the recognition that policy really has a significant role to play. As you said, Beth, there needs to be a level playing field so that companies that want to be progressive feel that they're not doing so from a position of strictest advantage. And that really seems to be developing significantly. We will hopefully see that change and the other milestones you mentioned across the next few years. No doubt we will have a chance to talk about them as we pass those milestones. But for now, Beth Jensen and Claire Burkamp from Textile Exchange, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having us, Ian. Thank you. Textile Exchange has indeed just published its new report with a framework and a toolkit for the apparel sector to help a transition to regenerative agriculture and to enable growers to develop more resilience. Very much worth a look. It's easily found online. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest insights and podcasts. And do look out for the latest in Marilyn Baker's op-ed series, this time asking if we can rely on innovation to provide solutions to the challenges of climate change. Don't forget also to take advantage of the discount available this week for the Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Conference that's coming up in April. Everything you need to know about that and all of the Innovation Forum's spring event series is available online. But that's all for now. I've Neil Welsh and until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.